Welcome to Sustainable Wellbeing, a special five-episode series of Into the Well with myself, Ryan Wilms, in collaboration with Allbirds and their community initiative, All Good Collective. Through these episodes, we'll cover a variety of topics, from regenerative farming and running, to cleaning up the oceans and dream interpretation. I get to dive in with inspiring individuals who are co-creating a world of connection, growth, and sustainable well-being for themselves, their community, and for our planet. On this episode, I speak with Liz Tran, founder of Reset, a podcast and coaching studio based in New York and now more remotely in Canada half the time. We dive into her story of working in finance, building a successful career, and realizing that there's more to explore and more within. We talk about how a trip to India changed her perspective, but didn't quite change her career choice. And then finally, surrendering and diving into starting Reset and the different courses and elements she brought together for a beautiful studio. And then when COVID hit, how she had to pivot yet again, taking it online and seeing how that could be even better. Um, she's used a variety of modalities and interesting healing and growth tools, which she shares um, from dream interpretation to plant medicine and some of the old standards like meditation, movement, and getting outside. I really enjoyed the chat with her and she had a lot of good stuff to share and I'm excited that we've connected and I'm sure there'll be more between us in the future. So I hope you enjoy the episode. All right. Well, I just want to start off by saying thank you so much for taking the time and, and joining me and you know sharing some of your some of your journey and the tools that you've accumulated over the years. So thank you very much, Liz. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Um, you know, for myself and for the listeners, I think it would be great to sort of get an idea of your background and growing up, um, where you grew up. You're in New York now. Um and just get an idea of what that journey was like to bring you up to present day. Yeah. So I grew up in Northern Virginia, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C. And for anyone who's ever been there, it's probably the most bland, monot- sort of monotonous, homogenous place that you've ever been. Everyone wears khakis and works for the government. And the good thing about living there, though, was that there's a really close proximity to the museums, like the Smithsonian museums. Um, I personally grew up in a really um, kind of stressful situation. So I was raised by a single mom who had immigrated from Vietnam. And it was just me, my mom, and my brother. And we grew up like moving around from place to place all the time. So I lived in four different places in elementary school, two different places in middle school, and two different places in high school. And from a pretty young age, I couldn't wait to grow up and be an adult and to live Mm. in New York City. So one of the upsides of my childhood is I read all the time and I would dream about living in New York or living in Paris. And I would think, oh, I can't wait till I'm 30 and I could have my own apartment and I could live my own life. Um, And then from there, I went to school. I went to college at the University of Virginia where I studied history and my whole life was geared around this idea that I was going to be a lawyer um, and that I was going to sort of pull myself out of the poverty that I had grown up in. And the way I thought that I would do that was by getting a real corporate job. Mm-hmm. So from there, I moved to Los Angeles where I was applying for law school. I worked at a law firm. I taught the LSAT in the evenings and on the weekends. 
And this is really where my first ever intuitive message came to me. And so I was 22 at the time. I hadn't gotten into meditation yet. I was still very much like partying, drinking, (laughs) enjoying being in my 20s, dating Mm -hmm. a lot. But I kept having these recurring dreams. And now that I'm, you know, more into my sort of wellness practice, my dreams really guide me. You know, I get lots of sleep at night, but that was unusual at the time. But I was having these nightmares where I was driving a car without any brakes. So like I'm on this behind the steering wheel driving through LA traffic. There's pedestrians that I'm about to hit. I'm weaving, trying to avoid hitting buildings and hitting signs. And I'd wake up just completely soaked in sweat. And what I realized is that in those dreams, I was having those dreams because in my real life, I felt like I had no control, just like Mm -hmm. I felt like I didn't have any control behind the steering wheel. Mm -hmm. And after a few of those dreams over a couple of weeks, I just thought I can't go to law school. Like this is what I'm trying to tell myself, but mm-hmm. I can't admit it yet. Mm-hmm. So I really listened to myself. I called my best friend. She said, move to New York. I'm here. We can share a place. It's so much fun. I moved to New York and it was an experiment. I said, if I can't find work that mm-hmm. feels good in a year, then I'll go to law school. <laughs> so I'll defer and go to law school. And I moved to New York and then I basically never left. So I've been in New York for 13 years now and my career has taken all sorts of twists and turns, but to sort of summarize it, um, I started working in tech and it was not really by design, but I had moved to New York in 2008. So there was a giant recession Mm -hmm. as people are really familiar with and I didn't really know how to get a job doing what I really, really wanted to do. So what my heart always told me I wanted to do was to work with writing, work with books and, you know, the publishing industry had taken a big hit. So some of, some of my friends, my boyfriend at the time said, why don't you go work in a tech startup, like take an entry level job. And that became my career for over 10 years. I started working at this tech company that grew super quickly and I got promoted. And then the next thing I knew I was like, running a team, super stressed out, <laughs> super into my career. Like all I cared about was work, even though it was something I had never chosen. And then when I was 27, then, um, I had just gotten married. So <laughs> I got married oh, wow. really early for New York standards. Mm-hmm. We got engaged after three dates and wow. it was super impulsive. It was like this whirlwind romance. And then we said, you know what? We're both working so hard. Like, why don't we take a year off and go traveling and see if we can reset our lives a bit. Um, So in that year, one of the major experiences of my life was going to India. That was the second time in my life where I've really just listened to what my heart said, Mm -hmm. even though I couldn't really explain it, but it just said, go to India, go live on an ashram, study yoga. This is important. So I went there, my husband, now ex-husband, he went to Thailand and he studied kickboxing. So we separated, went our separate ways to sort of do these journeys. And that was the beginning of like everything for me because it wasn't just about the yoga. It was living on an ashram and it took my mindfulness practice to the next level. And by the time that trip ended, I realized that I like had to make a major change in my life. And I came back to the U S and I started trying to teach meditation in corporate Mm -hmm. settings. And this is like 20 
this was years and years ago. So this was probably like eight years ago now. So this was like probably the beginning of reset, right? Like Mm -hmm. the beginning of like me wanting to do something like reset. And what happened was that it was hard, you know, like it was still kind of early in like getting meditation out to um, corporate environments. And there was some of it happening, but it wasn't where it's now where it's so accepted. And then also I kept getting pulled into other opportunities. And then when I was 30, I got um, the opportunity to interview at a really well-known investment fund. So this firm has invested in companies like Spotify, Slack, Glossier, GitHub, Instacart, basically like any giant success story, chances are that this firm was sort of involved in, in, in investing in it. And I thought, oh, I should take this job. So my job was to work with the founders of companies that we were investing in and to help them grow. And so all along the way, like there have been these intersections where I've been like, do I pursue my love of wellness or do I pursue my love of money, (laughs) you know, growing up so poor, all I wanted was like to prove that I could make money and to prove that I was a whole person. And so like things continue on. I work at this firm, do really well, get promoted to the point where like, I'm making half a million dollars a year. I have like millions more coming in from investments in the fund. And I really won the respect of my colleagues and all the founders, but I was so unhappy Ryan, I was like dying on the inside and I felt like my soul was like being crushed every day, not because it was a bad place to work, but because it just wasn't aligned with what I really wanted. And I had known for some time that what I really wanted to do was to work in coaching and wellness, but I couldn't like, I just couldn't like bring the courage to actually do it. And then finally, just a couple of years ago, I realized that like enough was enough and it was really my commitment to my practices that brought me closer to who I really was in that voice of knowing that like this wasn't my path. And then also as a person, you know, it may have been in the past that my life was really governed around trying to be successful and make money. And that was so important to prove to like my younger child self, you know, that seven-year-old who didn't have enough to eat or that seven-year-old who didn't have money to go on a field trip or to buy shoes for PE class like it was so important that I went on that journey to do that, but that wasn't my story anymore. Mm-hmm. My story was that like, I was now going to do the work that I actually really wanted to do. Yeah. No, that's great. Very interesting. And, you know, it's funny to come imagine coming back from that year off and spending that sort of time in India where I imagine you got so much closer to that heart centered self and then to go back into that sort of um, super capitalistic um, industry, you know, and it's so easy for us, I think, to come up with reasons why that's what we should do. You know, like I have certain times in my own life where I'm like, I can just remember justifying all the reasons why I should take this opportunity, even though my heart was really saying like, go live on an Island for a few months and just like be quiet and still, but you know, that, that voice can be overpowering. It's really loud and you hear it all the time, even when you're not even trying, you know, it's in the media, it's with Mm -hmm. their parents, their generation. Mm -hmm. It's even like your friends. I remember when I went traveling that year, there were so many people who were like, oh, I could never do something like that. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. But really like you can. And I felt, I found myself believing them where I was like, oh, is this silly? Is this stupid? And 
you know, even with when I started Reset, there were a lot of people who didn't understand why I was leaving this job. And I, you know, there were a lot of relationships that I made through work that I wound up losing. And I really honor those friendships, so appreciative for them, but also realize that like the most important thing I can do is really to, I mean, it's my life, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't yeah. live it for anyone else. Mm-hmm. And ultimately like I have to do what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting, you know, to have all those voices from, from the media, from our culture, and then even from like close friends, you know, that really can make you second guess what's in your heart. And I think that, you know, there's something beautiful about it in a way, because it takes that sort of courage to overcome all of those voices and really trust something deeper within yourself. And when you do that, it seems like a lot of the time it works out and you might not know how it's going to work out, but stepping into that is, is such a powerful thing to, to experience. 100%. And I find that I um, really have to make trying to hear that voice my own voice of regular practice. And Mm -hmm. I do that a little bit every day through meditation, through journaling, even through like make, when I make a decision, I try to use a framework of like, who is it that I want to be? You know, who is it that I believe to be anything from like, you know, this is going to sound so silly, but it's now the fall. And I went and I wanted to get some new clothes because, you know, we've been in quarantine and I wanted to just like have some fresh um, clothing for the winter. And I really asked myself, you know, what's who, what are my values? And because of that, you know, I bought everything secondhand because, mm-hmm. you know, even though there were things that I was like, Oh, but could I justify this? I really want this. I deserve mm-hmm. it. I've been working so hard and, you know, it's a constant practice. And I don't think it's anything that, um, anyone ever gets perfect at, but certainly mm-hmm. the finding pockets of silence in my life helps. Yeah, I think, you know, that word practice obviously gets used a lot, but it that's really what life is, you know, it's in every day is just an opportunity to practice and practice making new choices or, you know, reaffirming the vision and choices that we want for ourselves. And yeah, to, to get back in touch with ourselves in that way, you know, you said you had the experience with the dreams and then going to India you know, I'm curious to know a little bit more about that because that's, you know, a big sort of deep dive. For me, one of those those experiences when I was just desperately like looking for some sort of way to feel better and be better and heal. Uh, and I went and did a Vipassana, which was 10 days in, in Thailand. And I had no idea what I was doing, but it was probably the first time I was really confronted with sort of any sort of perspective on that voice inside and, and that I might be out of alignment with myself. So I'm curious to know a little bit about your experience in India, sort of where you were at in terms of being in touch with yourself, a mindfulness practice, and then going in and sort of deep diving into that sort of culture and and those teachings. Yeah. Um, well, first off, before I talk about India, I also did a Vipassana. It was so hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so good for you. I mean, there was one moment where I was literally like, should I just get up and leave? <laughs> because yeah. I don't know if I can take this anymore. But India, you know, I think part of it was um, the fact that there was a certain level of naivety. Like I didn't really know what I was getting into, which was great because I don't know if I would have done it had I really fully understood what the consequences were. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went to this, um, I went to Dharamsala, which is um, in the north 
of India in the mountains where the Dalai Lama actually lives. And I went to go study Ashtanga yoga, um, which is one of like the more strict forms of yoga. It's um, a certain set of postures that you do every single time and they don't change. So it's not like a vinyasa flow where, mm-hmm. you know, it's very fluid. This is like very rigorous. And, um, and it was the same thing with our days. You know, we woke up really early in the morning at five 30 and then we went to practice right away where we practiced for an hour and a half. We had breakfast. Then we had school, which was basically, we learned all about the eight limbs of yoga. So of the eight limbs, there's only one limb that is about physical practice. Mm-hmm. The other limbs are about your emotional state, your mental health, the way that you move through the world in terms of your values, et cetera. Um, and what I was really going for was like to just get better at yoga physically. Like mm-hmm. I had been doing yoga since I was in college and I really liked the physical practice of it. And I, um, I just wanted to like learn how to do great handstands and headstands and potentially have the optionality of teaching yoga in the future. And when I got there, I realized it was so much more about like a change of my emotional self. Mm -hmm. And it seemed that every single person who was there was in like some period of transition. Mm -hmm. I think out of the 20 of us, like 12 of the people were going through breakups (laughs) or people had just lost their jobs or they're making a big transition. And, you know, now that I like have spent a lot of time in um, the silent meditation world and in the yoga world, like that's you know, that's where the people go, which is great. Cause that's what they need. Yeah. And what happened was like, I got so much clarity about like my own relationship that I was in and it wasn't a healthy one. It was a super toxic relationship. And, you know, a lot of it was me because, you know, I hadn't resolved a lot of the issues in my life from, you know, growing up in a single parent household, never knowing my dad, mm-hmm. like having really unhealthy role models for relationship. Um, and, that was like sort of the beginning. Like we, my partner and I wound up getting divorced shortly thereafter. Um, and that really like even deepened my journey into figuring out who I was. But in that moment, like I was, you know, journaling every single day for like an hour, even though we didn't have that much time, but there was just so much energy flowing through me from Mm -hmm. doing yoga for six hours a day and then meditating and like chanting and just eating all vegetarian. So it was like no drinking, no Mm -hmm. drugs, you eat all vegetarian. You like, uh, don't actually even sleep that much, but doing that much yoga, it's like all these emotions come out. Like people were always crying during practice. It's all this stored trauma that people had in their bodies. And I made some really good friendships and saw different models for how I could live my life. Because up until that point, like my whole community was like people who were on the same path as me and Mm -hmm. validated that path. It was like New York young professionals want to get promoted, you know, maybe starting their own companies, but I hadn't met people before who were like, Oh, I'm a healer for a living Mm -hmm. or, Oh, even like, Oh, I'm a kindergarten teacher for a living. I want to teach them mindfulness. So that's why I'm here. I want to teach children yoga. And so there were new models that were popping up for me. And I got introduced to all these different books and all these different um, ideas I'd never heard of. So I didn't even know what the chakras were. Mm -hmm. And so I really learned about my chakras. I didn't really know anything about um, kind of using meditation for healing. And um, one day I was talking to a woman who was in the yoga school with me and her name's also Liz. She was from Ireland. And I was like, you know, I am like having all these issues with like my relationship. And now that I can step back away from them, I'm seeing them so much more clearly. And, you know, I think that there's like something more 
that I need to, to wrestle with. And I don't know what it is. And she was like, Oh, you should go see this woman who I know who's doing these amazing healing sessions, um, just up the hill from here. She's Irish also, but she's doing like healing for like $15, like go and Mm -hmm. see her. And I had this incredible experience with her where she put me into this like meditative state and I was able to like see my, like connect with like my younger child self as well as like my future self. So I was like 28 at the time or something. And I was able to see myself like in my late thirties and to see the woman that I would become. And Mm. suddenly everything was really clarified. Um, And what I realized is like that pattern of choosing a life that was based on like external validation and what people thought of me that also like spilled into my relationship choices where I had chosen someone who was really good on paper. He was really successful, really handsome, like, um, like very sweet and romantic. And, but the thing is like, he really didn't, he was like, just not nice to me. (laughs) basically. (laughs) (laughs) And I couldn't see that at the time. And that was what happened in India. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so interesting. Like you kind of mentioned before that the relationship was, was toxic, but you immediately noted that you sort of took responsibility for that, or at least in hindsight can see that. And I think that there's uh, I think it's in one of Don Miguel Ruiz's books where he talks about how we will, will accept the amount of um, sort of suffering or um, I don't know what the right word is as much from somebody else as we give to ourselves. So as much as we can be like toxic towards ourselves, we'll accept that same level of sort of toxic negative energy from somebody else. So it's only really by healing, you know, within ourselves that we sort of end up aligning and being able to find a partner that, that sort of gives us the, a little bit more of a whole love. I think. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I, um, I actually give out one of his books to all my coaching clients. So I'm, I love that you quoted him. Yeah, he's amazing. Like um, my girlfriend, actually, she moved in with me in March uh, right before COVID hit. And she has a little box set of Mastery of Love and Four Agreements. And there's one other one. But those two books are just so amazing. Yeah. Everyone who joins my founders coaching group gets a copy of the Four Agreements. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's it's so profound and so simple. Yes. Um, yeah, it's funny when you're talking about being in India and having all these people that are going through these crisis sort of transition times in their lives. Cause I remember like when I went and did the Vipassana on the very last day, there was an opportunity for people to go up and share just kind of what their 10 days had been like, where they're from, things like that. And I feel like 95% of them were like, I just quit my job or I just got fired or just got divorced. And I was sitting there being like, oh my God, these people are all messes. And then like, I just hadn't gotten there yet. I was like, I was still a year or two away from sort of this disintegration of the life that I thought I had or was on or thought I wanted. So it was kind of funny in hindsight to see that, but it's interesting how we kind of look back to these more ancient teachings and ways of being when we're in this crisis. And it would be a lot better if we were taught about them earlier, I think, a lot of the time. Definitely. So what drew you to to sign up for the Vipassana if it wasn't a major crisis? Well, I was dealing with more physical issues. I just had all these like digestion problems and um, felt like my body was sort of crumbling. And it was really heavily influenced by levels of stress. And I just didn't really understand all the ways I was 
stressing myself out around that. So I was really trying to look for this, you know, peace to help me heal that. And, you know, that was a big part of my learning process, but it was still like another sort of year or so after that until I was like, okay, this isn't going to be fixed with like a two week cleanse or um, meditating for 15 minutes a day. If I'm going to go and work 15 hours a day, I need to like really take some time away from work and look under the hood. Cause there's just gotta be something more emotionally going on here. That's, that's causing these issues. So that was kind of the moment for me that was like, okay, I'm going to like put all of this to the side and, and go kind of look at myself and spend some time with that. And I felt like I needed to step away from, from New York and from, from work to afford myself the energy and space to do that. Yeah. It's always amazing how our bodies know even before we know (laughs) what's going on way before. Yeah. Our bodies, you know, like I have this, this like quote kind of came to mind that we have all the wisdom that we need already within us. And our body is always communicating that deep kind of universal wisdom but it's just, we've become so good at not listening to it and staying sort of neck and above and, and justifying any other reason why oh, I'll just have another coffee, you know, little things like that. Or I'll maybe just take this job or, oh, maybe I'll do this freelance shoot on the weekend when you know you need that weekend to rest. Yeah, 100%. I think that um, if like if I ever achieved one thing in this life, I would feel most satisfied if I could get to a point where like I was in complete harmony with like my soul, my emotions and my body all the time. (laughs) Something to aspire to. (laughs) Yeah. I think that is, I feel like that's the the ultimate goal, but that's definitely a practice. And I feel like if you can get like half or three quarters of those in alignment, then you're probably doing pretty good. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, You mentioned, you know, growing up, obviously your pursuit, career-wise was a lot to do with sort of money and and the sense of security and success. Um, I also wonder, you know, as you sort of dove back into your childhood, um, how the the elements of, of moving so much, you know, I know that that can make it really hard to develop relationships as a kid. Um, you mentioned not having your father around, and that obviously affects your sort of idea of love as you become an adult and get into relationships. I wonder how those other factors sort of played into your development. I think we can never discount our childhoods because when we're little, we are like these beautiful little sponges that absorb every single thing around us. And um, even now after, you know, six years of therapy and Mm -hmm. lots of introspection, lots of meditation, Lots of, you know, really trying to figure out what a healthy relationship looks like. I still feel the edges of my childhood creeping up. And even, you know, as recently as like with COVID, Mm -hmm. um, when COVID hit, we left New York, my husband and I, and we went to Canada um, and we moved around from like Airbnb to Airbnb because we didn't know how long we'd be in Canada. And Mm. we didn't know, like, we didn't want to overcommit to something And it was so overwhelming for me where like, it felt like this heaviness or like, you know, like a deep well of anxiety, like right in my chest physically. And 
the fact that I could like even connect that and be like, Oh, this is just bringing up a lot of old stuff from like mm-hmm. moving around all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the moment, it's just about knowing that and being able to like, not let myself be triggered and to express that. Whereas before, like I wouldn't have known why I felt so upset mm-hmm. and I would just like take it out on everyone around me, you know, mm-hmm. like blame my husband, blame COVID, blame this and that blame anything except for like, you know, the part that shouldn't be blamed, which was just really my childhood. And I always think of it as like, it's a, there's a wall, you know, that gets created within you when you have traumatic events as a child and you can't ever like take the wall down, but you do learn how to like move around it. You know, you can just be like, Oh, it's a wall and like walk around it. And, or like another analogy that I love is like the record already has grooves in it. Right. But you can turn the volume up and down on that sound. And I think I've gotten to the point where like, I can be like, okay, this record is playing, Mm -hmm. (laughs) acknowledge it. Should I turn it up or should I turn it down right now? Like, do I need to listen to it? And it had been a couple of years since I'd been in therapy because you know, I, I left my job, I started reset and I felt like I was in a really good place. I'd met my now husband and he really felt like, he felt like my gift after like years and years and years of doing this work to like find myself and to heal. And it felt like my life was really great. I always said when I lived in New York that like, there are three things that are important, like your living situation, your romantic relationships and your job. But in Mm. New York, you can only have two out of three (laughs) right at the same time. And it always felt like that where it's like, I hate my apartment. You know, there's like a mouse in it and cockroaches or, you know, like my job is killing me right now. But it had gotten to the point where I was like, oh, all three feel so good. But when COVID hit, then like all the stuff started to come up again. And I was just like, you know what? I need to support myself through this again. Mm-hmm. And like, let's go back to therapy. Let's take more time to meditate. Let's take less time to work where, you know, I'm really particular about my clients these days because I know that I need to make the time for self-care because mm-hmm. my pattern is to fall into workaholism and like there are all these like feelings within me that want to come up and like suppressing them by like Mm -hmm. working, working, working is not what I can should do right now. Like it's the easy Mm -hmm. path, but I can't do it. And, you know, for me, it has been like a real curiosity in working with my childhood. I've read Mm -hmm. like over a hundred self-help books. Like I love (laughs) anything Mm -hmm. related to like childhood trauma or like parental patterns, relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just find it really fascinating. And I think that the real silver lining is like, I think I was always meant to be a coach. And part of the reason why I am so sensitive to like, I think one of my superpowers in coaching is like, I can really read between the subtext. So Mm -hmm. if a client is telling me what they're upset about, like I hear them and I'm listening and I can also really feel what it is that like is truly the root of that. Mm -hmm. And I can't explain it beyond its intuition that has been accumulated over years and years and years of like, just being highly sensitive to the human experience because I had to be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's so cool that you can sort of develop those skills, you know, throughout your life, you know, not necessarily as consciously, but then you can get to this point where it's like, Oh, I've like, I can keep this like skill that I've harnessed over my life and now use it for something more positive or more aligned with how my heart wants me to. I think it was interesting how you said it's easy to, be a workaholic, you know, it's easy to just go and do that all the time. And it's true. It can be. And it's like, we mentioned before, like, that's what the the voice of our culture 
tells us we should do anyways, but it's much harder and takes more strength and courage to slow down and to get quiet and to take that time and make that space for yourself. And, you know, there's another classic saying that's like, you can only um, fill up another's cup if your own cup is full. And, you know, it's so important to be able to do that and, and make that choice, but it, it can be really hard. It's really hard. And I think, you know, we're so used to not ever having silence because even if you're sitting somewhere, you can be on your phone. Mm -hmm. And my biggest recommendation to anyone who's trying to get into a mindfulness practice is go do a silent retreat. Like it can, it only has to be like a two or three day one. Mm -hmm. And obviously it's really hard right now because of COVID, but Mm -hmm. they do really great ones online where you can do them from your house. But I almost feel like the antidote sometimes is to like completely let yourself drop into a completely different way of being for a couple of days. Because I know even for me, even though I try to meditate as regularly as possible, I do get swept up into the inability to be able to have that stillness. And whether it's filling my time with work or podcasts Mm -hmm. or looking at my phone, the other day I was like, why can't I even like brush my teeth without listening to a podcast simultaneously? You know, like it's nice to have that, that filler so that you don't have to like really acknowledge whatever pain you're experiencing. I think we're all feeling a lot of it right now, just with everything that's happening in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And yes, I think the idea of doing, spending even a couple of days uh, in silence is, is so important. Um, You also mentioned early on, um, about listening to your dreams. And that's such an interesting sort of area that I'm only just trying to explore myself. I wonder if that's something you've sort of tapped back into in terms of a, another way of listening to that subconscious voice and, and understanding a little bit more with uh, allowing the mind to get out of the way. It's one of my favorite things to do. So I keep a notebook by my bed and I'm always telling my husband the dreams that I had the night before, and I've gotten really good at dream interpretation. Mm -hmm. So if you ever have a dream, then just call me Mm -hmm. and I will interpret it for you. I do it for my friends all the time. And what I do is if I'm really working with a question that I have in my mind, then I will actually, um, write it on a slip of paper and I'll put it under my pillow. And I don't know if it actually does anything for real, but I think it does. And so I'll give an example. Um, The first year of reset. So 2019, just last year, um, I got to the point where I was like, Hey, I wonder if I should go raise some money and turn reset into a tech platform. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I went out and I started to do fundraising meetings. So I put a whole pitch deck together. I tapped my whole network. I was doing tons and tons of meetings and something just like it, one, it felt like it wasn't really working, you know, not in the way I wanted it to. Mm -hmm. And then secondarily, there was something that felt really off for me, but I couldn't tell if it was just stress and anxiety about like really wanting to raise this round or not. Mm -hmm. Um, so I couldn't tell if it was like, I'm not in alignment or if I'm just stressed out because I really, really want this. Mm -hmm. So I started listening to my dreams and I would write down like on a piece of paper, is this fundraise supposed to be happening? Is this what I'm meant to do? And it became really clear, like after a few nights of doing this, that I didn't really want to build a tech platform for reset. I didn't Mm want to be the founder of a startup that is busy, busy, busy all the time. That was what I was trying to get away from. But really what it was, was that, you know, I was so used to so much external positive validation that when I went and started my own company, it felt so quiet 
And like, I was like, why aren't people like telling me how great I am all the time? So Mm -hmm. I was subconsciously going back to the thing that I knew how to do, which was, you know, my contacts in the venture capital space. And, you know, in my head, I kept thinking, oh, well, if I raise, you know, a couple million dollars, everyone will see that what I'm doing is okay. You know, everything Mm -hmm. that I'm doing is great, but it wasn't my dream. And I'm glad that I listened to my dreams then. And um, oftentimes my dreams like come to me when I haven't even asked a question. And so I just have to be ready for them and to like, basically like write them down right away. Let's sit with them. And so I have like a whole practice where, um, I write them down my journal and one quick tip for anyone who's listening and thinking about their own dreams, any person who you dream about you're it's actually just a facet of yourself. Mm-hmm. So for instance, like I dream about my dog a lot, my dog Grover. And to me, Grover represents like like stability and happiness in my family because he's so important. Like that's what he symbolizes Mm -hmm. when I dream about my brother. It's I'm dreaming about my childhood experiences, my childhood hardship. Mm -hmm. When I dream about one of my best friends, Dolores, I'm dreaming about my spiritual self because she's really spiritual. She's very religious. I'm not religious per se. I'm Buddhist ish, but that's who she represents when I dream about her. And when I dream about my friend, Tessa, that's like my artistic creative self. Mm -hmm. And so I've learned like all these different ways to interpret dreams and it's really fun. Highly recommend. Yeah, it's cool. Actually, my girlfriend and I signed up um, with a friend of mine. He's doing a six week dream, dream work course. So we're starting next week. So I'm pretty excited to dive into that because we've been sharing our dreams more and more. But yeah, and uh, what you just said, I think is really interesting about, you know, even just like a little dream interpretation 101, the idea of all these other people in our dreams being something that represents ourselves. And it's cool the way that you sort of have identified these different figures with the different sort of components of your own self. For people maybe starting to think about that, how do you sort of lean into that maybe? Like what I imagine or my sort of, understanding is that the dream is very metaphorical and that can be through these different people. And what I try to lean into is if I am seeing a person or there's something going on, I try to really feel what the feeling is associated with that rather than sort of literally think about what's going on. 100%. And also I think that's a great point in general where the number one most important foundational aspect of dream interpretation is literally just how do you feel in the dream? Mm. Because, you know, you, you and I can both have a dream where we um, find uh, we're in, we're walking around an empty house and you might feel so excited in your dream mm-hmm. and I might feel terrified. And that's the first clue, right? Like however it is that you just are literally feeling, mm-hmm. that's how you actually feel. And that's what your body is trying to tell yourself that you mm-hmm. feel, you know, yeah. because like if you are excited about this empty house, it's like, oh, that probably represents the fact that you're feeling excited about all these possibilities that are in your future mm-hmm. and, you know, being able to decorate how you want, et cetera. Um, and for me, it's because like I have latent anxiety. And so really our dreams often are just like, if you think about the functional element of dreams, like our ancestors, like hunter gatherers would dream because it was their way of preparing themselves for future events. So mm-hmm. um, you'd run from a lion because then when it actually happens, then you've had experience doing it or you're dreaming because you're literally processing and making sense of everything that happened to you that day. So you can mm-hmm. compartmentalize into buckets. It's like, okay, remember this, let go of that. Remember this. 
you know, create a pattern of this thing that happened. Mm-hmm. And so we're just sifting and sorting through the, all the information that we've taken in. And a huge piece of that is like how you feel about your life. And as we talked about kind of throughout this whole conversation is like, as simple as it seems to be in touch with yourself, it's actually like the thing that's hardest to do, especially in our society where that gets really pushed away. And so using your dream to even just say, oh, wow, this is how I really feel. Okay. Mm -hmm. What might I be feeling that about? Yeah, absolutely. It was funny. Even when you mentioned your dream earlier about the car going through LA with no brakes, it immediately made me think of, remember this dream that I used to have quite regularly where I would be driving and the brakes would work, but I couldn't stop the car before I would rear end somebody. Like I would wow. slam on the brakes and like, it would always, whether it was hard or even just like right at the end, like hit the car in front of me, it just could never stop the car soon enough. Wow. I just got chills all down my arms when you were <laughs> telling me about that. How old were you when you were having that dream? Uh, definitely through my twenties, I feel like, and probably early thirties, even I, I don't remember having it in the last year or so, but it was, it must've happened at least a dozen times. I feel like to me, that feels like this, um, feeling of like wanting everything in your life to be perfect and like conflict free. And so you, you have all the tools in place. Like you have the car, you have the brakes, mm-hmm. but for some reason, like you're not completely in control as best as you're trying to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Even just that, it's like, I'm not present enough to know that I need to start breaking or something Mm. or I need to slow down. Like I'm like too distracted that like, then I hit the brakes and it's too late at that time. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. (laughs) Well, uh, we've kind of mentioned reset a little, a few times, obviously, but I wanted to, you know, hear it from you in terms of what your vision for the platform was when you started out and maybe how that's evolved and, and the vision for it now. Yeah. So it seems crazy to like talk about how much it's evolved because it's only been uh, a year and a half since reset has been officially open for business, but we are in crazy times right now. So the original idea was I would have a physical space Um, which I was really yearning for after like years and years of years and working in like the most hypothetical situations where my work was always just about like my mind and like ideas and then Mm -hmm. telling people what I think they should do. Mm -hmm. I didn't ever feel like I was like producing anything real. So I wanted a physical space. I opened this beautiful studio, Nolita in New York that I filled like top to bottom with gorgeous crystals books about spirituality and personal development and professional development. Um, And the dream was to have um, corporate clients come in where I would lead them in workshops and then also have classes in the evenings and weekends for anyone who wanted to come in and learn different methodologies for um, continuing to learn about who they really are. So you could come and take a meditation class Mm -hmm. in the morning. You could come and take a class on learning how to read your astrological chart for your career. You could take a breathwork class. And that was the dream. And it was really working. And it kind of was to combine my love of all the other stuff I do to support my well-being and my personal growth with all the stuff I do in my professional life because they're so intertwined. Like who Mm -hmm. you are at work, is who you are at home and vice versa. Like the lessons we learn from relationships with our coworkers are what we bring into our romantic relationships and mm-hmm. vice versa. So 
It was going pretty well. It was definitely hard. I was very, very busy um, because I was running the studio, doing like business development for getting clients in the door, teaching a lot of the classes. And when I wasn't teaching classes, I was interviewing teachers and doing the schedule, writing the newsletter, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. So it was like almost like running two businesses, a corporate business and a consumer facing business at the same time. And then when um, COVID hit, it was really sad because it felt like it was just starting to work. Like um, financially, I had like my first few consecutive months where like, you know, we were making more money than we were spending. And that felt really, really good. Um, and I just thought I'm at a crossroads here. Like I can hold on to this place that I love so much, or I can just be really truthful about the situation, which is that there is not a world when people are going to be gathering indoors to take classes for a very, very, very long time. And my total outlay on like rent in the fanciest neighborhood in New York Mm -hmm. is crazy. So I, in 48 hours, I made the decision to shut it down. And my husband and I, we went to reset this place that I had like put in um, $150,000 of my own money into renovating. And also just the money is really not important, but like the love that I put into Mm -hmm. like curating everything that went in it, my brother-in-law like designed the furniture that went in the space. My sister-in-law like gave fabric to create these beautiful um, cushions that people would sit on when they were learning. Um, Friends gave me vases and books and paintings. And my friend Tessa, I turned a lot of her um, art into like artwork for the space, had it framed. And so there were all those like memories of just like me and my community mm-hmm. there, like we even had a mural where everyone would come in and they would put little seashells and it created this giant mural um, that was made by the community. And to basically decide in 48 hours that it all had to go and then like put things in little piles and then leave for Canada and then put everything in storage. It was like totally heartbreaking. Yeah. But the thing is like, I'm so proud of myself. Like when I look back at starting reset I'm of course like proud of starting my own business, but what I'm most proud of is like making a tough call and Mm -hmm. doing it even though it was hard and then being open to what it might bring into my life. And Mm -hmm. since then my life has changed completely. Like (laughs) I am not busy anymore. It's great. Like I am not running around when I was running the studio, I'd basically work from like 8am until like 10pm at night. And Mm -hmm. I'd just like eat pizza at 10 30 because it was the only thing that was open in my neighborhood sleep for six hours wake up like do it again i was running a wellness space yeah i was the most stressed out person <laughs> i'd ever met like i didn't look good i like felt really bad i was like always like really frayed at the edges and since reset closed down it was the first time in my life where like i had time to like cook exercise every day meditate every day figure out what mm. i really want stay open to it, like know that the universe had brought me to this point for a reason. And then I discovered something really wonderful, which is that I love writing because I had all this time to write. And um, I think in the beginning I said how much I loved reading and writing when I was Mm -hmm. a little kid. And then I kind of forgot about it because I needed to get a job. And it's been this really wonderful reconnection with that. So right now my days um, are really beautiful. I spend them reading and writing. Um, I spend about four hours a day on my coaching practice. So Mm -hmm. I coach founders of um, venture capital backed startups, which um, is beautiful because I do business coaching, but I really fold in my wellness practices. So we always meditate together Mm -hmm. when it's necessary. We, you know, I teach them about their chakras in addition to talking about things like fundraising and Mm -hmm. hiring employees and benefits. 
And so it feels like my two worlds have really come together, which was what I wanted when mm-hmm. I left that ashram. I wanted to combine business with my wellness practices. And as a result of like the studio closing down and hearing my voice, I've decided to actually, as I continue to do reset, to go back to school and mm. to get my MFA in creative writing because it's something that I really want. And so the platform for reset has really become so much more um, about the written word and it will be, you know, a series of self-help books mm. um, as opposed to being physical in-person classes. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now, like if you're someone who's listening to this and you want to access reset, we do have classes online. A lot of them are free also. Um, and, those are just resources for people who want to learn more about themselves, whether it's through the lenses of the Enneagram, astrology, mindfulness, numerology, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. I mean, that's such an interesting evolution and, you know, another reminder that nothing is really permanent. Um, yeah, I think it's really interesting the way that you sort of combine this sort of mindfulness and, and well-being of the individual with this sort of business approach. I mean, you know, I love a lot of the graphics and copy and stuff like that that you share through the Instagram. Um, and a lot of it, you know, you're referring to attachment styles and self-love and self-care and setting boundaries and, you know, a lot of it, self-esteem, things like this. And I'm curious to know, you know, as people come to you for business, I imagine they're not necessarily thinking like, oh, what attachment style am I? Or like, how's my you know relationship with my mom or dad affecting my business choices and how I'm going to grow this company. But um, how do you sort of approach that sort of combination and integration of those different things? And um, do you find most people are, are open to it? I'm sure that there's a variety on that front. Yeah. I mean, I would say a lot of people are not open to it, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, I have really great clients who mm-hmm. I love working with and who love me and it's different, right? Like if you are looking for an executive coach and you're the CEO of like a hundred person company that has raised $20 million, mm-hmm. then like you have a lot of options and um, I'm very different from that. And mm-hmm. I think it's been a huge asset because I only get to work with the people who like really believe in my methodology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I don't, I, I think language exists so that we can like help people understand things in a way that, that really resonates with them. Mm-hmm. And so I may not use like the word like trauma <laughs> to one of my clients, sure. but I might say like, what are some of the most influential moments in your life that you still carry with you? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think people are really open to that, especially because um, the people who I'm working with who are founders, they're like, very accustomed. They like get the idea that they're who they are spills into their work because they're so obsessed with their work, right? Like Mm -hmm. that their self-esteem is intrinsically tied to the work that they do. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was really cool because I was teaching this or it's like leading a group coaching session with a group of founders who are all creating these amazing companies. And, um, you know, none of them are like explicitly in wellness at all. You know, one's in healthcare, one's, you know, in CPG products, et cetera. And the conversation really easily went to what is my childhood? What happened in my childhood? Cause I asked the question, like, what are your roots and how did they impact the company that you are building? So I use the word roots instead of like childhood mm-hmm. trauma, because like that is much more appealing <laughs> yeah. and people really went there and mm-hmm. it was beautiful and it was moving. And I think people want to be seen. Mm-hmm. And part of seeing a person is seeing not just like 
you know, the day after they raised their funding check and they suddenly became the CEO of this great company, but who they really are is like who they were when they were four or five, six, you know, like Mm -hmm. when they were awkward and they were 13. And those are the moments that like, you know, when I am coaching people, I love it when I ask a question and there's a pause because it's kind of a strange or unexpected question to ask. Like if I, if someone's telling me about an issue with, um, you know, in, in, uh, feeling like they're not working hard enough. And I say, whose voice is that? Mm -hmm. And then they think about it and they're like, oh, that's my dad's voice. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there are ways to like help people guide, guide them towards that Mm -hmm. without explicitly doing it in a way that like makes them feel like, you know, we're about to like have a shaman jump out and like hand out some cacao. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, not that often that people are going to dive headfirst straight into the deep end. You need to wade out slowly one step at a time. So, you know, that sort of language and, and gentleness, I'm sure, is really appreciated. But in, in the end, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying in terms of people do really just want to be seen and and held. And, you know, it's easy to be seen and held when you yeah make a bunch of money or get a great article about you or your company gets all the funding it needs, but it's in those moments of vulnerability and and um, weakness, you know, that when oh it's actually okay to feel this or to share this and this person's still with me, you know, this person's still listening to me, and that's that's just so healing and affects so many other elements and aspects of life. I feel like. Yeah. And I think we're getting closer to that. Like, I think one of the silver linings of COVID has been that the discussion of like mental health in the workplace Mm -hmm. has become um, pretty norm, like pretty much the norm because, you know, everyone's feeling it and experiencing it. And I found that um, my clients are much more receptive to um, talking about these things and having me lead workshops around them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's such, it's so needed. Uh, I think obviously like doing this work for ourselves as individuals is, is kind of the big step one, because we need to nurture that relationship with our own self. And then it, you know, obviously takes action in the world with our partners or our parents or our children. But if you're, you know, running or managing a company with tens or hundreds or thousands of people, that's a lot of relationships. And all too often over the last, you know, decades or maybe longer, like the people in charge of those companies are not sort of nurturing those relationships in a positive way. And that's kind of a little bit of an issue with where we're at in terms of some of the problems with, you know, I don't even know all the toxic relationship variables, basically. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we see examples of that all the time in the news of companies who that like sort of unprocessed or like Mm -hmm. un um that sort of like frustration and anxiety that lives within a person who is the founder of a company can then spill into all the employees as well Mm -hmm. you know in my sort of education and experience doing this work myself um you know became very evident that childhood and how i relate to my parents and what i internalized in that in that experience was super crucial but it took a little bit more time to realize that how I relate to money is such a potent relationship in itself, um, energetically. And I think it makes a lot of sense, you know, looking back and it's like, Oh, I see my parents. And if they're stressed about money, if their energy is going into work because they need to make money or 
that if there's a lack of money, you know, that relationship transfers to us in how we approach our careers and value that. I wonder how you've sort of worked with people on that front or with yourself and sort of what your sort of insights are on, on how we relate to money and how that can affect us much beyond just what our bank statement looks like. 100%. I mean, I think for a lot of us, the feeling that we had, whether or not, you know, I think for a lot of us, our parents never even explicitly said this, but mm-hmm. it was something that we felt from the world, which was that um, how much money you have dictates how much you're worth as a person. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I think even like when I was younger, I remember people just talking about like kids who are really young being like, how much money does your dad make? Or, mm-hmm. you know, like, Oh, her parents have like, sh- her parents are so rich. You know, like you hear about like, that's mm-hmm. kind of the way people are described to you who are people who, you know, are like the coolest kids in high school or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And it's really hard to work your way out of that. And for me, like it, I had, I have two phases to my life. Right. So the first phase was like in my twenties where basically I felt like, I need to prove that I am also worthy. So I'm going to get what I never had. So I can be equal to all these people who I wanted to be equal to. Mm -hmm. And then the second phase of that happened more recently with reset, where I just realized that like my worth has nothing to do with how much money I make. My worth is something that comes from within. And the big turning point was like, honestly, when I shut down the studio and I thought, whoa, I really like invested probably like close to $200,000 into that project that doesn't exist anymore because there's no space. But then I thought, you know what, if that $200,000 went toward helping people through these classes and this programming, Mm -hmm. what a better use of money than that, right? Like I can't even think of much better things to spend my money on besides even like, just like directly giving it to people who are really in need. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it feels like a good use of money for me. And, you know, the summer, it was really, you know, the whole experience, especially this summer has been, what has been really hard because I was used to like making a lot of money and I gave up all of that when I left my job in finance. Um, and this summer, right when COVID hit, I lost some clients. Um, people weren't booking because there was no physical space. It was really, really challenging. And I got to the point where I realized that I had to just love myself. Mm-hmm. And it's not just like when, you know, the New York times writes about me or I'm like on TV on Bloomberg talking about the business I'm building, but like the moment to love myself was then where like, I basically had like zero clients, zero bookings. My studio just closed down. I was living in like a random Airbnb in Canada with my husband. Well, not, he was my boyfriend then, but like, you know, where I like didn't know what I was doing with my life. Like didn't know when we were going to be able to come back to New York. And I just thought, you know what, like the worth that I create comes from within. And right now I may not have money, but I do have all the treasures that are within me. And so I started writing and I started Mm -hmm. doing free classes for people. So I like did all these workshops during basically from like March to June that were all about helping people get through COVID and adjusting to being at home that I gave out on a sliding scale. And I said, anyone who can't afford to take this class, like I'll give it to you for free. Cause I was like, if I'm not making money right now, I might as well just like give more, you know, I have time on my hands to do mm-hmm. this. Right. Because I don't have other work coming in. And honestly, like it all kind of like worked out. I had some like trust in the universe and like some big things landed and like some miracles happened. And, you know, at that point in the summer, not only had I like lost the studio, I was like a hundred thousand dollars in debt from like 
launching the business mm-hmm. at like a physical space, hiring all these teachers, blah, blah, blah. And now it's October, beginning of October. And like all that debt is gone. Mm. And like, I am making a good living every month. And I really believe it's because I was being forced into this point of like being like, are you going to love yourself and like mm-hmm. believe in your self-worth or are you going to get a job and like give up on yourself again? Cause I really thought I was like, maybe I should just like quit doing reset and get a job. <laughs> but you know, and like, and that's not to say people shouldn't get jobs because sometimes that's what you need to do. Mm-hmm. But I knew that my question in that moment was like, it wasn't about getting a job. It was like, am I going to continue to prioritize money as a measure of my self-worth or not? Yeah. And so I think sometimes for everyone, it's like, you have to just like realize that, we're all being told that like we're being that our, who we are as a person is, is dependent on like how much money we make. And it's like, what a sad way to like measure ourselves. We're so much more than that. We're so much more Mm -hmm. complicated and beautiful. And um, we have so much more to give than literally like what we do in exchange for a paycheck. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so much there. First, I meant to to say before, but the studio did look amazing from what images I saw and all those like components that you mentioned and put into it. Like that was what really like got me excited and interested in Reset when I first discovered it. But, you know, like a human in their bank account, there's so much more to it. And um, so it's cool that you're continuing to do it. But yeah, I think that that whole process, you know, really resonates with me. Um with what you're saying about, you know, this idea of, of self-love of joy and happiness, it really needs to be self-generated from within to be, to be real and, you know, unconditional. And because it's so easy for us to put those conditions on ourselves, like, you know, my experience has been around money where it's like, okay, well, I need to make this much money or have this job or, you know, have this cool stuff, or I need to be this, you know, fit and running this fast or this far, or like all those things. And in the last couple of years, the the money and work has sort of been stripped away. The I had a bad knee injury, so that was sort of stripped away. And even though I can see, okay, well, this is, you know, the universe giving me an opportunity to learn to generate these feelings and this love from within it's still really challenging to do that. And I find myself, you know, reaching for things or I'll get a LinkedIn email where it's like, Oh, this like creative director job at Nike. And I'm like, Oh, that like little Ryan's dream job, you know, but I also know I'm like, that's not what my heart wants. <laughs> and, 100%. Uh, yeah. It's always, I feels like it, it feels like it's consistently being tested over and over again. Um, but yeah, you know, that process is, is really challenging. And, and like, it sounds like you've, done more and more, the more you can trust yourself deeply and trust that the universe is is there to hold you, the more things will sort of unfold in your favor. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I've been like tested since that time when I got back from India and I was like, do I do this work or, and start my own company or do I go take this job? And, you know, it's really, um, the first time where I've like stayed really strong in that. And even though this year, like starting reset is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, Mm -hmm. but I would never, ever, ever take it back in the world because like, you know, being in that low point, that rock bottom this summer, I, it was the first time in my life that I really learned that like, even if I were like, continued to be in that situation for many, many more months or even a year or years, 
I just had the certainty that I could still love myself. And part Mm. of that came from like my partner who he loved me so wholly through that. And I was like, oh, if he can do this, why can't I do this for myself? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such an interesting thing with the self-love and, and, you know, having these different components stripped away. It's, you know, if we have those conditions and we're, and we're too attached to them consciously or subconsciously, we can deny the love that's there because there is love around us all the time. And we have, you know, our family members, our partners, and they are loving us to the best of their ability most of the time. But we have to like take our responsibility in that relationship and allow that love in and realize it's not to do with what our bank account looks like or uh, different things like that, the superficial elements. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, my understanding and and feeling is that self-love, like everything sort of comes back to this self-love. And if you're able to tap into that and shed the conditions and, and generate that from within more and more, that's where like the greatest healing and expression of ourselves can be in the world. I wonder, you know, how you work with clients either corporate or if it's more of a personal coaching situation, how do you sort of take steps towards that? If you have any tips or, or any sort of roadmap cues that would be useful. Yeah. You know, I think the first thing is in building a deeper vocabulary of all the wonderful things about yourself. Mm -hmm. So we tend to just roll with whatever society gives us, which is, Oh, he's really handsome and really smart. And, um, he, you know, he's really nice. Right. And so those are kind of like, there's maybe like five or six things that we say about people when we say that we like them. But I think the first step is really noticing all the things that you do really, really well. And it might be like, I, um, I am a really good listener or I am really patient with young children, or I have great taste in books. I am a whiz at like putting together a bunch of foods, you know, into a brilliant recipe, even when I don't like have, I haven't planned it out. And so starting to notice those things about yourself. And so the first thing I say is like, you should take some personality tests and learn how to celebrate those amazing parts of yourself. So Mm -hmm. the classics are obviously Myers-Briggs. So learning about your type and celebrating that you are here for a unique purpose on this world. Like I so believe that every single person, there's no one like Ryan in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's no one who can do that exact set of things that you can do. And so the more you learn about how unique and special you are, the better. So knowing your Myers-Briggs type, knowing your Enneagram type, like those are really fun ways to start beginning. Even like, I mean, this is, this is more for friends, but like learning about your astrological signs, not Mm -hmm. just your sun sign, but those are really big clues into like what amazing stuff you're meant to be creating in this world. And then from there, Um, This is actually an exercise that is in a book that my husband wrote um, called 50 ways to get a job, but I use it all the time with clients where you make a list of all of your talents, all your skills and talents. And then when you're done, you make another list and you can't have any of the same talents on the first list as a second list. So this forces you to really think outside the box. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you're done with that, then you make a third list, but this time you think about all your skills and talents from when you were a child. 
Mm. right? Like what were you really good at when you were a kid before you started just compartmentalizing what you're good at into like what you are good at at work. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of the day, you have a list and what he says in the book is that the first list is like what you think, what you value in yourself. The second list is the way other people see you. Mm -hmm. And the third list is like your hidden and talents and skills that need to be uncovered. Mm -hmm. And so I think that like us really engaging and working with the practice of the seeing yourself and noticing that is really important for me. I always do two things at night before I go to bed. I do my gratitude list, which is like, you know, everyone does a gratitude list, but it's so, so important. And then I also do a self-appreciation list. So I name 10 things that I liked about myself or I did well that day. Mm -hmm. And you know, even I do 10 because it's like really hard because sometimes I don't feel like I did anything good besides like, I literally woke up and took a shower good for me, (laughs) you know, like when it was hard to do. And that practice of like building that self-appreciation list every night, um, it trains your mind to start looking out for those things during the day. So subconsciously, you know, you're going to have to write, write a list of 10 things that night. So I'm kind of on the lookout for things that are like, oh, hey, Liz, good job. Little pat Mm. on the back there. And so I have my clients do that. I mean, I have not all of them, but like when, when my clients are going through a really hard time, when we start a session, I say, tell me five things that you did well this week. And sometimes they say, I've got nothing for you. I can't. And then I start to say, oh, what about this? What about that? Mm -hmm. And it gets the ball rolling, but you'd be surprised how hard it can be for us to look at ourselves with, um, the intention to find good things about ourselves, because it's usually the opposite. We look at ourselves with the intention to find things we can fix. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's such a powerful thing to overturn. And I'm just like thinking to myself, I need to get back to, you know, I used to use the five minute gratitude journal app and like, I need to get back to that sort of stuff. Cause it really is just so much easier to be self-critical and pile up a list of 50 things rather than find the five good things. Oh, I know. Oh my gosh. I, realized this like a few years ago, it was maybe like, this was like my peak of working out all the time. And every time I would look in the mirror, I'd be like, Oh, your arm is too, too, your left arm is like fatter than your right arm. Like crazy things Mm -hmm. where it's like, I should just be so happy to be like young and have a body that works. Like Mm -hmm. so many people would kill for that. Like when you're in your eighties, like, and you're hobbling around, but I think it's so important. Something like my hero is obviously Oprah because she's everyone's hero, (laughs) but she kept a gratitude list for 10 years, every single day without fail. And this was like when she was like already successful, she still like made the time to do this because what she says is like, the more you recognize, the more it multiplies. And I think it holds true Mm -hmm. for gratitude and it holds true for like your own Mm self-appreciation. And, um, you know, these are all like little tips and tricks, but I think the main thing I would say about appreciating yourself is like, no, this is true. 100, 100% is that you were brought into this world, like reincarnated into a human body Mm -hmm. in this one human life, because there is something special that you're meant to do. And, Mm -hmm my experience of coaching almost a hundred individuals one-on-one and then also teaching large classes for people through reset is that literally everyone is so special in Mm -hmm. their own particular way. And then the sooner you get to knowing that and starting to unravel it, the more you can come alive in this world. Yeah. I think that's so, so true. And I think what's really cool about that too, is the more you get in touch with that with yourself, you can start to see how special everyone else's and how unique everyone else is, which, you know, that level of compassion and empathy is really powerful and very needed in the world. Mm, That's such a good point. It's so true. It's hard to do that, right? Especially like when people disagree with you about 
mm-hmm. political or you know yeah. values, but it's really, really important. And that's like, you know, I think we're programmed in this world. Like if you go to a dinner party or cocktail party to immediately think, Oh, who's going to be like beneficial to me? Or like, who is someone who I actually want to talk to? Mm-hmm. What's wrong with this person? Should I move away from them? And then the opposite of that, which really like brings so much richness into this world is like, can you move through the world? Just knowing that no matter who you meet, that person has like so much light to shine on you in their own way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's really, it's like a game changer really to be able to walk through life like that. And hopefully more and more people are moving that way. Um, that exercise you mentioned that your husband wrote about, that sounds very cool. And it made me think of a similar one where you sort of explore some of the things that you were really good at as a kid and really enjoyed and how that can sort of help you get more clear about what that purpose is in life. And I feel, well, I'm still sort of trying to figure that out for myself in this new phase of life, especially with like professional context, like how important is it to find purpose or to have purpose? And that could be a life's purpose. That could be to write a book in the next 12 months or run a marathon in six months. You know, it could be shorter term, longer term, big or small, but um, from your perspective and in the coaching context, like how valuable is having some sort of purpose or North star to be aimed towards? Yeah, I think it's the most essential thing, but I think what is really dangerous is when Um, you feel a lot of pressure to figure out what your purpose is. Mm -hmm. And I kind of think that we have a million purposes in this world Mm -hmm. and they're all like shorter term than we believe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, it's never worked out for me personally when I have like a a real like outcome focused goal that is my purpose. You know, honestly, with this book that I'm writing, I said I would have it sold by October, 2020, which I don't know if you noticed, but it's (laughs) October, 2020. Like the book is not written. Like it's like, Yeah, tons of time. I have like 20 more days. And, and that was like, not, that's not a purpose for me. Like a purpose for me right now is to really learn how to like live and joy every day. Mm -hmm. And that's like just what is important because like, I know that that's what I need in order to help people. And like, I just think it's like, it's what I need right now. So I think having a mission statement is always really, really important so that you know what it is that you're doing. And maybe your mission statement is like, you're going to be curious um, about curious and open-minded about what your career will look like over the next, you know, two, three years. Mm -hmm. And so that's like sort of the purpose that you work with every day. And so I think having a North star is important, but knowing that it's like not a North star in terms of like achieving goals, but it's a North star of like, what do you most need right now for yourself? Mm -hmm. You know, what direction are you facing? Right? Like how do you prioritize uses of your energy over the other. So, you know, maybe someone's purpose is to like get in really good physical shape because Mm -hmm. they've been neglecting that. Like that's a great purpose too. Mm -hmm. Or like your purpose might be to like learn how to like really nurture and take care of yourself, like your human body and that's cooking and that's Mm -hmm. exercising. And so I think whatever it is, it's like tuning into what you most need in the moment. There's um, a really great exercise. It's called the wheel of life. And you guys can just Google it and it looks like basically a pie chart that has 12 slices. And um, what I regularly do to check in for what I need is I'll do the wheel of life where you basically score each piece on a scale from one to 10. Mm -hmm. And then you connect all the dots and you can see like which slices are really missing from your life. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like I looked at my wheel and I was like, 
I don't have any fun in my life. Mm. Like, it sounds really weird, but I was like, I don't feel a sense of like joy or creativity or play. And so that's just like kind of what I'm prioritizing for myself right now. And no one's wheel will ever be perfect, Mm -hmm. but it's such a good tool to look at it and know, Oh, okay, this is a problem. But I think it's really dangerous when, um, when people are say, you know, I'm just trying to find my one life purpose. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you will do that. And you know, you're going to do many, many different things. Like our lives are so long right now. And, um, I think it's really about just like getting to know what you are really good at in the world and then like respecting that and valuing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I do agree with the, that idea of goal setting is not getting so attached to accomplishing it even, or what the outcome of that goal is going to be. But I think like the, the value of aiming yourself like, okay, I'm going to go in this direction towards this thing and having that to be able to measure those choices daily, whether it's food or exercise or having more fun um, and just being open to that changing and evolving. Like, just like you've kind of shared about reset and how that's changed and evolved. You know, if you were so attached to having that physical space, you would have probably kept the lease and, you know, just been bleeding money, but you know, you're, you're open and able to adapt and evolve that, that vision and goal and, been able to stay nimble. And, you know, I think that's the way to sort of work with goals in that sense. Um, yeah. You know, I think a lot of, um, people are getting really into the idea of manifestation these days, mm-hmm. which is something that I've always really worked with a lot in the past. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who don't know, it's basically like whatever you think and you believe will come true. And people say like, you know, write down what you're manifesting and then focus on it every day and call it in and blah, 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 blah. And there are a lot of books about it. There are a lot of um, coaches out there who teach it. And I 100% think it's true that like whatever you want, you will get that somehow. I promise you, right? If you really believe that you deserve it, you'll get it. But the problem that I think with manifesting is that like, life is also full of beautiful surprises for us. Mm -hmm. Like if you just let life unfold naturally, it actually like winds up doing a better job than if you like really carefully plot it out. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I don't know if you feel this way about your career, but like you've probably been taken in all sorts of really amazing directions that like you never would have planned for yourself, but Mm -hmm. are way better than what you could have imagined when you were 22 and like creating this career map for yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's like, if you have a dream, which maybe it's writing a book or it's running your own business or it's falling in love and having a family, those things will 100% all happen, but they will never happen the way that you think that they will in your mind. So just really stay open to those possibilities. Yeah, no, I do agree with that. And like, I'm a huge fan of, of Joe Dispenza and that's, you know, one of his big teachings is like, you set this intention and you, you know, try and feel what that would feel like and train your body emotionally to, like have that experience but you don't try and figure out how to make it happen the universe is gonna do that for you in a way that you could never expect and and there's an element of surrender and trusting that that's both challenging and extremely beautiful Mm, so true um with the idea of manifesting like i do also believe that to be very true. But the thing that I find and I struggle with it, and it's kind of coupled with this increased level of mindfulness and awareness is, you know, I can write down on paper, like I want X amount of money a year or this house or to feel a certain way or run this race, you know, but I know that there's all these subconscious beliefs that can self-sabotage 
that, you know, potentially superficial belief or conscious belief that I'm writing down and to sort of change those, I find much more challenging, I guess. Um, I wonder how, how you sort of navigate that. It's funny because one of the big things I was trying to manifest when I left my job was I said, within one year of reset, I want to be making the same salary that I did when I um, worked in finance. Spoiler alert, it <laughs> has not happened, but I'm really happy. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I'm, I live a comfortable life. Like I'm very lucky. Like I have beautiful places to live and, um, you know, my needs are met. And the thing is like, I got so frustrated because I kept trying to manifest a specific number amount and it wasn't happening. And it was like, it was almost like the opposite. It's not like I didn't believe I deserved it, but I was like looking for the wrong thing. Right. Like I Mm. was trying to manifest like something that would prove externally that I was worthy instead of trying to manifest just like what I really needed in this world. Right. Mm. And so I think that, um, that's one thing of like trying to think about like, what you put on your list? Is it something that you, your soul, your heart, your dreams mm-hmm. really want? Or is it something that like you are being told that you should have because you're X age mm-hmm. and at X point in your career? Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is like, if you're, if you're sort of the other way where you're shy about like writing down audacious goals, because you don't think that you deserve it. I would say like, go track back and think about like, where that comes from. And I know it happens a lot, especially for women, like women who I coach, Mm -hmm. they um, will say, Oh, I want to make X amount of money. And it's significantly less than actually like what they should be making, but it's more than what they're currently making. And there are these beliefs that like, you can't make giant jumps or that they don't deserve it. And so I really think looking back and thinking, okay, the question you should ask yourself first, before you make your list of what you're going to manifest is that if you are being completely illogical and you're just dreaming and you didn't have to worry about how you were going to get there. This is like your wildest dreams. Don't bring logic to the table. What would that actually be? Mm-hmm. Right. And then, and also like if you lived in a vacuum without other people around, right. And it was just like you, what would you wish for? And so making sure that those dreams are like really crisp from the standpoint of like, they're just for you. They're not for like superficial reasons in the world. And secondarily, like you're not feeling, um, sort of hamstrung by what you think you can achieve because we can actually do a lot more than we think that we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I think to finish it off, you know, I, I'm, this is kind of like a weird side step in terms of questioning, but, you know, I'm just curious to know a little bit more of your own path. You know, I know that you've shared that you went and studied yoga, obviously meditation, um, I know on the website, it mentions that you, um, use Reiki as well. Um, what are some of the other sort of modalities, you know, could be a shaman with cacao or, <laughs> or anything else that's, you know, maybe a bit out there, maybe not that have sort of been significant in your own journey of self-discovery and growth and development. I mean, first off, I'll just say I've tried everything under the sun, <laughs> Like after I got divorced, I was like, oh man. So I got divorced and I was like, oh, this is his fault, whatever. And then I got into another relationship right away. And that ended pretty dramatically after a year. And then I was like, you know what? I think the only commonality in this whole string of failed relationships <laughs> is me. <laughs> Everyone else seems to be fine after they break up with me. They're like moving on to like normal relationships. And so, you know, my quest at the time was like to figure out what the heck was going on with me and Mm -hmm. why I had all this like 
baggage that I was bringing into relationships. I had anger, I had jealousy, I had, you know, a real sense that I didn't deserve to be loved. And, you know, I really just listened to whatever was thrown my way. I started getting into astrology because I was listening to a podcast that wasn't even about anything new agey and Mm -hmm. they randomly had an astrologer on and I emailed her and now she's like one of my best friends. Mm -hmm. I saw her every year, multiple times a year. Now I see her less because I know astrology, but you know, I followed these little um, clues, this little bread trail, whenever Mm -hmm. I would see like a little crumble of bread, I'd be like, Oh, maybe I should see how this feels. And I always say like, if you hear about something once, think about it. If you hear about it twice, do some research. But then when you hear about the third time, you should just pretty much go do whatever it is. You know, it's like, if it's like Vipassana, I'm sure you're like the first time you're like, well, that's weird. Second time you're like, (laughs) maybe third time, like, okay, I think I need to go to this. So astrology has been a big one in my life. Um, obviously meditation, Reiki was really powerful. I don't actually practice Reiki as much right now, but, um, I really love that. Um, ayahuasca has been incredibly healing in my life. And that just really came into my life. Very, um, uh, it was very synchronistically. Like I had heard people doing it before and I was like, eh, I don't think so. And then when it was actually the right time, it was actually the right time. And then, um, it was a practice that was really powerful in my life for about two years. And then after that, like, I haven't really felt the need to go back. Mm -hmm. I think all these things have seasons. Mm -hmm. Um, for me also breath work has been a big thing. Um, I was a smoker for many years when Mm -hmm. I was living in Virginia and like waiting tables in college. And that was like a time in Virginia where like, you could just smoke in bars indoors, which is crazy now. And as a result, like I feel sometimes really disconnected from my own breath and breath work Mm -hmm. has been really healing, um, I'm trying to think what else. Oh, there's this thing called family constellations, mm. which is really cool. And that helps you sort of figure out what it is that are the dynamics that you've inherited from your family that you're still carrying onward today. Because sometimes we don't know those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've also tried a lot of things that were really weird and like didn't work. And then I sort of just chalked it up to like, okay, like I did a water rebirthing ceremony in Mexico, which was supposed to heal like my trauma from being in the womb. Hmm. And after I finished, I was like, mm, I think I just floated around in the water with a stranger <laughs> for like two hours, but you know, worth trying it. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of my life has been about these modalities and that's actually what I'm writing my book about. Each chapter is about like a different thing I tried and then how it wound up working oh, out. Oh, cool. That's really cool. Yeah, I think, I mean, even if it doesn't work, I think just putting yourself in a new experience like that is a beneficial thing to do. Stepping outside of your comfort zone and being open to what might happen. Yeah, I mean, I love that you're doing your dream workshop. I can't wait to hear about what you think about it. Yeah, I'm super excited about it. Um, Like ayahuasca has been a huge sort of tool for myself as well. And I've I've shared it on the podcast. And um, the guy who's doing the course has been heavily involved in the community the plant medicine community that I've been there. So he's kind of like using that as a bit of a context for it as well. So I think it's going to be very cool. He really approaches it as a way of like the opportunity to go into ceremony every night. Mm. And so, yeah, I I think it's going to be pretty enriching. Oh, that's so amazing. When does it start? I kind of think I want to do it too. Is it online? Um, It is. Yeah. It's over zoom. I'll send you some info, but his name's, yeah, his name's Cordell Jacks. Cool. Yeah. 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 It's really good. All right. Thanks so much. That was great. I really enjoyed learning more about you and your journey and reset and everything. So much good info. Thank you for having me. And I hope we can be friends now. Yeah, definitely.
We'll have to, <laughs> we'll have to hang out uh, up in Victoria. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. All right. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Whether you listen to it on Spotify, Apple, or through our website, it would be great to hear your feedback and thoughts. If you're able to leave a review, it'll really help us share the message and share the podcast with more people. Thank you.